one of the things that I can't help but do when I'm walking around with folk. I'm just going to be asking them questions nonstop about random things because I want to absorb it all and understand it all. You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. Or this week, how curiosity shows up in walk and life. was interested in this intersection of walking and curiosity and place, and particularly in place making, what exactly our being in a place does, how we shape those places ourselves, how we experience them, and where does curiosity fit? My guest today is Graham Carell Allen. Graham is a Baltimore-based social practice artist and self-described radical pedestrianist. He works to make cities more inclusive and livable through public art, walking tours, and civic engagement. And I've had the good fortune of seeing Graham in action. So this isn't exactly public art, but we all just passed it, and it was mentioned earlier. This, of course, is the the very famous Deep Throat Garage where Bob Woodard met with Mark Felt in 1972 and 1973 to receive classified information about the Nixon administration's attempts to stymie the FBI's investigation of the Watergate break-in, which ultimately led to Richard Nixon's resignation. So they met in uh, parking space 32B in this garage. And that whole story you can read on this historical plaque. I understand that the developer is seeking a way to continue to denote the site uh, in their future redevelopment. But I wanted to, to point out a different feature of this of this very subtle public space. You know, there's there's really nothing other than that plaque to kind of to really draw attention to the fact that this is a very significant place of uh, public interaction that took place in the 70s. However, there is this other form of pedestrian marking that's taking place right here, this traffic triangle. You can see where the curb is broken and it continues with asphalt. And from that tree, over to the grass, there's a series of stones and there's nothing growing, it's just mulch. And that's an example of what we call a desire line. A desire line that has been created, a path of pedestrian footfall erosion, marking the shortest and most easily navigable route between origin and destination. And so I like to imagine that they were just meeting so many times at 2 a.m. in the morning that they, they marked this permanent desire line here uh, as they were coming from farther down the street. You describe your tours as starting with an expansive understanding of civic space and activating that potential through sharing of radical histories, community organizing efforts, poetic taxonomies, and subversive redefinitions. There's so much to work with there. Where do you start? I, I start with uh, the, the expansive definition of public space. So I describe public space as any area accessible to most people within a given community. And now this, of course, disregards traditional notions about, you know, like what is privately versus publicly owned and incorporates a vast, much wider terrain of areas that could be described as, you know, some shade of public. And, uh, and this is what I find to be most fascinating. Uh, learning more about them by, you know, exploring not only just the the streets, parks, and plazas, you know, the official stuff, but also uh, the kind of informal or what I describe as the invisible sites and overlooked features of the everyday environment. And that was, I think, what attracted me to what you were doing, because it is that attention 
to the things that we tend to overlook or the things that we have learned we're not supposed to be as interested in. And to me, that's part of the fun is sort of finding those like, what's special about this place? So do you have a do you have a way of going about doing that? So what I the way I start out is just walking around and kind of following my nose, so to speak, uh, whatever may attract me, um, you know, taking time to observe, to listen, to talk. And um, and then, you know, going back and starting to do my research. My background is in art and architecture. And uh, and I came about doing these tours uh, as a sculptor doing what we call site specific sculptures or public art installations, what have you. Uh, but I could never really tell who all was going out to check out the work. Um, so I'd go out there with my friends sometimes and I would, you know, talk about the relationship between whatever I did and the space that it might be responding to. And I realized at a certain point uh, that I could just talk about the space. Um, and I didn't necessarily need the objects or the materials uh, as an intervention, rather just being there in, com in community, friends and passersby, uh, we could learn a lot from each other. So you gave me an article to read that had been influential to you. And it's such an interesting, playful, in not just a physical way, but in an intellectual way with a space. So describe the philosophy and what speaks to you about it. Sure. So uh, the, the, the practice of the derive comes out of uh, some, some artists and radical thinkers of uh, the 50s and 60s, uh, known as the, the Situationist International. It started in Paris, and it spread to several other cities, including you know, the, several in the United States. The, the most recognizable figurehead of this group would be uh, Guy Debord, who wrote this article, uh, 1958, uh, Theory of the Derive. And um, I found this to be really uh, inspiring and affirming because it kind of is a way that I approach understanding public space, which is starting off with what could be uh, perceived as a chance-based operation. You're kind of just walking around and enjoying yourself and looking and following, and your, your structure is a lack of structure. And so you're not going out there to do something. And oftentimes we don't really pay attention to our environment because we, we're on a mission. We're going to work, we're, in, we're commuting, uh, we're going shopping, we're trying to th remember the list in our head. Or maybe we're, you know, trying to find a parking space or something. And so we're only really zooming in on particular details in order for us to accomplish these goals. But when you kind of strip all that away and you just allow yourself to wander, then you inherently start to pay attention to all sorts of details. I mean, my first takeaway was that it felt very playful. It felt very engaged. It is. It is a very playful act. And what I love about it is how uh, the Situationists instrumentalized play to also be a political act. And so um, the article doesn't get too much into this, but they were radicals and they, they were interested in trying to reform society in a place that would be more equal and democratic. The, the whole idea of the derive was to be able to better understand uh, what they described as the psychological contours of the city. Oftentimes we have these kind of unconscious uh, effects that you know we're experiencing as we uh, make our way through public spaces and in our everyday lives. And we may not entirely understand like, why am I feeling aggravated right now? Or why am I feeling uh, sort of creeped out? Or why am I feeling joy? You know, or why am I really excited? Or what am I looking forward to down the street? These are all subtleties, but there are clues along the way that we can appreciate and, and really uh, seek to better understand when we slow down and just pay attention to everything around us. Um, and so I try to, you know, use that those strategies on my tour as a way to uh, un understand these public spaces, to look at everything and not just to look, but to listen, to smell, to hear and uh, to just sense in all ways. This is kind of like the granddaddy of parkour, isn't it? I mean, that's 
also a way of really engaging in a very immediate way with space in a somewhat transgressive way. I mean, it's using surfaces in ways probably their architects and builders and owners didn't really anticipate. Absolutely. And uh, and that's one of the kind of underlying political sort of currents of my work, which is I am interested in helping to cultivate an appreciation for public space as being accessible to all, that all of us, regardless of our legal status or what may what whatever, uh, ha- have and are entitled to using public spaces um, for enjoyment, for recreation, for gathering in community, for uh, you know freedom of speech, uh, for all sorts of activities. And they have this this uh, this concept called the power of ten. In order to have a successful public space, you have to have at least ten sort of positive. Attributes, things that invite people to stay, things that are helpful, functional, beautiful, etc. Uh, but I also believe that there's a great opportunity here with so many of these invisible public spaces, I, as I describe them. These sort of marginal zones, parking lots, uh, highway embankments, median strips, lobbies, all the kind of in-between stuff, uh, you know, that we, we inherently utilize as public space. Well, how could that also be a, a cultural space or experienced in a cultural way um, and, and be embraced as such? And so I try to encourage that through understanding the subtleties and looking at these details of areas that people oftentimes, you know, mistakenly think that I'm making a joke about. They think, oh, that's ironic. You know, you're going to give a tour of a parking lot. Well, and you, one of the tours I took with you, you were pointing out the textures of the sidewalk. And I am willing to bet that a gamillion people have walked down that sidewalk and never paid attention to the sidewalk and and the meaning of those textures and the origins and the historic references that are there. But I will tell you, I can't go down that block anymore without thinking about the texture of that sidewalk. So it's a, to me, it's also a gift to the space because you begin, the space becomes richer as you have those stories. That was along um, a sidewalk, a concrete sidewalk, uh, along the edge of what will in the future be Courthouse Square. So it's the former site of uh, Arlington's courthouse complex. And uh, there's this grand vision uh, to redesign it as, you know, a true public space and uh, with all sorts of options for activities. Right now, it's used as a, as a parking lot, though. It's a very unglamorous, and uh, and yet uh, there's something so rich about that to understand the history, the the current aspects of design. You know, for example, this is an experimental sidewalk that they actually tried out as a decorative sort of attempt at using a form liner to create a uh, a pseudo uh, flagstone like texture on this sidewalk. Unfortunately, it being a very bright, you know, still pretty fresh concrete, the texture is hard, hard hardly less. So you really got to kind of stoop down and look at it and feel it to understand, oh, there's a texture there. That texture is actually uh, inspired by a historical reference. This is a very historical site. Let's talk about that a little bit. Right. Well, and I loved, I I mean, I I have lived down the street from that sidewalk for 30 years and didn't know that story. And to me, that was also part of what's interesting about your work is extracting those stories through your research, but also through your engagement with the people who are around you. So we took one tour and people were People were adding the stories that they had, the information that they had, and that all kind of goes into that space. And it's a it's a different sort of placemaking because it's somewhat ephemeral, and everyone who was there carries that information out. So for me, that space is now always informed by that group of 
um, strangers or new acquaintances that you know kind of walked around that parking lot with you a couple of months ago. It was fascinating. Oh, thank you. And and that's an example of you know sort of a temporary community. When we walk in community uh, on this tour. Uh, we are helping to create a new type of public space. And so one of the big messages that I try to share on all my tours is that public space isn't just a product of design or, or the built environment. Uh, the built environment provides a context or a framework, but public space is created by the people who activate it, who occupy it through their everyday actions or special events and so on. You know, uh, that, you know we could just call it, call it programming, but I think there's a, there's a more beautiful kind of uh, currency that takes place when we're meeting new people and having these kind of chance uh, interactions and then and learning from each other. And there's so much that I learned from neighbors who use, uh, you know, their public spaces that, you know, you can't find in a textbook or online. Right, right. Well, and then also, you you create these places that invite people in to have those interactions. I mean, some of the reclaiming of, I'm forgetting what it was, it was like an old basketball court or something, right, that you kind of turned into a more colorful, inviting play space, or the crosswalks that are um, hopscotch courts, or the it's like bird prints across a path. I'm thinking about all the images that I've seen in the last couple of months of your work. Talk about people's responses to that. Sure. Well, there, uh, what you're referring to uh, are examples of some of the uh, public art that I create. So in addition to leading walking tours, I also create public art for what I describe as pedestrian safety and play. And, uh, and this is, you know, a form of placemaking uh, that I find to be uh, really exciting. You know, when you take a look at a public space, um, you know, and talk with folks and understand how do they use it? What are their ideas uh, for making this space even more successful? You know, how could we address some of the, you know, the, the needs or concerns? And how could art help to accomplish these things? And so one example that you alluded to is uh, my hopscotch crosswalks, which are located at Lombard and Utah streets in downtown Baltimore. These were created in 2013 in response to an open call from Baltimore Office of Promotion and the Arts uh, asking for artist design crosswalks. And so I was thinking about, you know, how could we make uh, these very big downtown streets a little bit um, safer and also playful and, and, and inspire people to hop and a, a skip and a jump in their day. Uh, and I've also long for forever, I've had an interest in creating uh, interventionist hopscotch boards. And I thought this is a great opportunity to do a permanent hopscotch board in a crosswalk. So it's a large scale hopscotch board, actually four of them, four four crosswalks. And in each one of these, I imbued a set of footprints that uh, are references to the people uh, that make downtown Baltimore great. So if you've ever been to Baltimore City, you may notice that we have these um, bombastic bench uh, slogans that say, Baltimore, the greatest city in America. And so kind of thinking about that, what what makes it great? And so I've got, you know, shoe prints to represent the, the office folks, the business people. And if you follow the direction of shoe prints, you're kind of heading towards the central business district, downtown skyscrapers and so on. Uh, then we've got footprints that head north up towards where there are several uh, artist lofts and studios. We're making reference to the artists that have helped bring a lot of energy to to the west side of downtown uh, over the past several decades. And then uh, I've got boot prints that make reference to both the history of labor in this former garment district, as well as the current service workers who help power our healthcare industry uh, around University of Maryland. And then lastly, I've got bird tracks. And if you follow the direction of the bird tracks, you will end up at Camden Yards. So in, in Baltimore, <laughs> As you, as your listeners probably know, uh, we have the Orioles and the Ravens, and so those are major sports teams. And I've been out there on game day, and it's my absolute favorite thing to see both kids and adults who are jumping along the hopscotch. 
after they've parked somewhere for free downtown and they're taking the long walk to the stadium, you know, they're just a block away and they're really pumped up and they start jumping and it's in these big throngs and so on. And that's it's like, that's exactly what it's about. You know, it's just to add a, a bit of charm and wonder and uh, to, you know, make it accommodating for people to enjoy themselves in public space. I am always curious, and this is one of the things that I've, uh, I can't help but do when I'm walking around with folks, is to either ask them questions all the time. For example, when I'm a guest and I'm brought into places like beautiful neighborhoods we have around uh, Arlington, if I'm next to someone who lives here, I'm just going to be asking them questions nonstop about random things because I want to absorb it all and understand it all. And, you know, why is this this way? Or, you know, what's the plan for that? And uh, what is the culture, for example, of uh, motorism? And I've seen several uh, motorists who will go out of their way to yield to pedestrians. I think that's really cool. Uh, I've also seen motorists who kind of don't notice, right? right? And so there's an opportunity there to help continue change the culture. I was going to walk on the other side of the street, but I actually found it a little bit too intimidating. There's this there's this turnoff ramp here. You could you can walk across the street, but you got to be very careful because the cars are swooping there onto I-66. There was a crosswalk that's pretty much erased. I call that a crosswalk dissolution. When parallel lines appear to rupture and wash thin, crosswalk conviction leads to uncertainty. I'm not so certain it's safe. For me, curiosity is a way to understand, uh, you know, the social context of what's going on, the history, and, and just technically what is happening. You know, I also have interests in, you know, engineering and infrastructure. Uh, it's not the sexiest thing, but it really explains a lot about why the cities, why our cities function the way that they do. There's this whole vast, uh, you know, subterranean set of uh, layers operating underneath us that govern uh significant parts of our public spaces and uh and, and inherently inadvertently shape our own experiences here on the surface uh, the sculpture is called cupid's garden and it was completed in 1994 and you can see here that we have uh, a large stainless steel polished sculpture consisting of 23 intersecting arrows so the arrow motif is very prominent in the artist's work over the years and here he described it as the garden where cupid would grow his arrows so that was his sort of idea for the piece, that this is a garden for growing arrows. And uh, as they were developing it, they discovered a significant way into the design process that there was in fact, a, there is in fact a large water main that runs directly underneath that traffic island, which forced the artist to have to significantly redesign the piece so that it would provide the uh, requisite five foot distance above ground for utility workers to be able to dig up that line should they need to. That's why some of those arrows are, are, are taller off the ground. And I think that was a really great sort of unexpected change in that it's created a taller sculpture and it's something that you can even explore uh, a little bit more. And there's a path that takes you down to the tip of that traffic island where you'll find that the brick path itself turns into another arrow that provides a beautiful overlook looking down the hill. When I was preparing for this, I was actually doing a little research and I came across a piece out of Liverpool, England, a paper on curiosity, place, and well-being, and looking at encouraging space-specific or place-specific curiosity um, to build well-being. So both learning to see places differently, but also focusing on what they call, and maybe this is a term of art, the micro-geographies of place, uh, literally sort of the curiosities of the place, like found objects and that sort of thing. And that they're their research, their efforts are suggesting that that contributes to individual and community well-being, that people feel better 
when they're actually doing those things, when they're engaged with the space, when they're noticing it, when they're sort of looking for the unexpected or the unfamiliar. So do you think of yourself as contributing to well-being? I I hope so. Uh, It's interesting you bring that up because I've been involved in conversations and projects that are funded by um, planning health grant or uh, public health grants. And uh, and so it, there is a great zeitgeist right now of public health and urbanism, understanding how cities help create uh, healthy communities. And and this totally go, you know, goes exactly with what you were describing, where uh, people are, um, you know, more mentally stimulated. They're more empowered when they're in safe, healthy, interactive public spaces where they feel like they're that they can really make it their own and they can interact. Um, if you're in a very sort of sterile corporate or highly controlled public space, let's just say like a, you know an inter- a shopping mall out in the suburbs or something, uh, we really have some pretty strict limitations on how we can behave there. And there's not really we, we, there's not really a lot that we can do to shape that environment, as opposed to uh, publicly owned streets, for example, where there's a whole mix. You've got you know maybe a business improvement district. You've got the store owners that are putting you know seats out on the sidewalk, accommodating folks to sit down. You've got the neighbors walking back and forth, and then you've got the people who are just who love their places and and they through their own generosity and um and enthusiasm are out there fixing it up you know they're going to paint a mural or they're going to do a sculpture or they or perhaps they're going to have some sort of outdoor event like a block party or a performance or something and uh and and these are the types of uh i would describe as uh you know more robust or you know creative uh or empowered public spaces that are very uh that that tend to be more healthy and they come through they they tend to happen in areas that you have a little bit of higher density enough density that you can have what we call walkable urbanism so if you're out in the suburbs things are spread out really far it's hard to get that sort of energy going when you've got a bunch of stuff clumped together uh, and you have so much, so many different activities along a street or around a plaza. And so that's why it can be difficult to accomplish these things in the most extreme versions of the suburbs. Uh, but people are trying. They're trying to bring some density and they're trying to bring some nodes. And we're seeing a lot of that in places in Arlington. So uh, yes or no, if you build it, they will come. I would say no. I, I think that uh, you can't just build it. There's another ingredient there. Uh, and uh, that ingredient is is people, and um, you really have to. You can't just build it. You have to invite people in to take ownership, and not just as a oh hey come and use come and use our shopping mall or our public space that's in the middle of a beautiful main street that we've completely you know, uh, orchestrated to look like something older than what it is, but rather um, ask people at the beginning, what do you need? How can we work together to help create that uh, and, and, and meet all of our, our goals? And uh, and along the way, uh, strengthen our neighborhoods and create a safer uh, set of uh, creative public spaces for all. And so I say, you don't, you don't, you don't start with build it and they will come. You say, it's the other way. You say, invite them to come first, be in conversation, and then you build it. Cool, cool. So, of course, I had to have Graham do an analogy. And wouldn't you figure? I have barbecue. <laughs> and uh, this is apropos because I just had some barbecue over the weekend. 
And uh, I love uh, I, barbecue is uh, is like curiosity because in, as one seeks out barbecue, the best barbecue is found in the most uh, unexpected places. Yes. And uh, and it's not the type of thing that you ex- can experience in a fast food chain, but rather you kind of have to go out to the edge of a city. And in Baltimore, that might be Big Bad Wolf or Chaps, you know, and then you get to find that uh, authentic original flavor of, you know, whatever the local barbecue may be. And that is in essence, a curious experience, and you have to seek that out. Uh, and then, and it kind of goes both ways, you know, because as we can go outward, we can also go inward and towards our backyards or front yards or stoops or what have you, and uh, and enjoy barbecue uh, with our neighbors, uh, which also is uh, is always a curious experience. Once you start barbecuing in public space, you're going to attract a lot of attention. So oh, I love the way that you turn this into not just a conversation about curiosity, but a conversation about community. As we watch together in community, we helped enliven these public spaces. And together, we practiced radical pedestrianism, which is simply the practice of traveling by foot through infinite sites of freedom while testing the limits of and redefining these public spaces. So that is what we did today. We helped redefine them among ourselves, learning from those who came before us. And you all, as residents, as workers in the area, can keep on redefining these public spaces together in your own vision henceforth. Thank you all very much. You're listening to WERALP 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up on this show or any of the other great programs here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. Choose to be Curious is also available on Mixcloud, Soundcloud, and now iTunes. Find us on Facebook at Choose to be Curious and follow me on Twitter at Choose number two, letter B, Curious. You can learn more about Graham's work at grahamproject.com and about his tours at newpubliccites.org. He and I both want to give a shout-out to Arlington Public Arts, Cultural Affairs, Walk Arlington, and the Roslyn Bid, among others, which are sponsoring more walks coming up August 1st and the 12th. More info at roslynva.org. I hope you'll join us next time when Encore Learning's Executive Director Marjorie Varner joins me to talk about choosing to be curious as we mature. Spoiler alert, curiosity is good for your health. Until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.